0: Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 3, Fully Alive. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today we're going to talk about a saint who is so important to the rise of Christianity that Pope Francis has recently declared him a Doctor of the Church the scholar, bishop, and bane of the Gnostic heresy, Saint Irenaeus. Unlike George, Thecla, and many other saints we'll cover on this show, Irenaeus is known not so much for his miracles or his martyrdom, though he did perform miracles, and he may have been a martyr, but rather for his defense of the Orthodox faith against heresies which threatened to tear it apart from within. There isn't a great deal to say about his life, so I won't belabor the details. He was born around the year 130 in Anatolia. And no, before you ask, I'm not Turkish. It's pure coincidence that the first three saints I've chosen for this podcast all happened to be born in the region that's now known as Turkey. The fact is that Anatolia, as it was called in antiquity, was one of the most vibrant parts of the classical world home not only to saints, but also philosophers, emperors, and mystics of many cults and cultures. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that so many famous figures in the early days of the church came from that same area. In any case, Irenaeus did not stay forever in the land of his birth. As a young man, he dwelt in Smyrna, now Izmir in Turkey where he learned the Christian religion from his elderly mentor, St. Polycarp, who had in turn been a student of none other than St. John the Evangelist. Yes, you heard that right. Irenaeus was two degrees of separation from the beloved apostle himself. Through Polycarp, student of John, Irenaeus received the authentic tradition of the faith. It doesn't get much more apostolic than that. Sometime in the middle of the 2nd century, Irenaeus was ordained a priest and moved to Lugdenum in Roman Gaul. That's Lyon in modern-day France, where he would end up becoming bishop after the martyrdom of that city's first shepherd, St. Pothinus. That's why you'll hear him called Irenaeus of Lyon in the West and Irenaeus of Smyrna in the East. I'll stick with Lyon, not least because it's more pleasant to say, but both titles are truthful. The life of Irenaeus bridges the gap between East and West, which is part of the reason he's been named the Doctor of Unity. Though a son of the Greek-speaking East, As a bishop in the Latin West, Irenaeus worked tirelessly to champion the faith against the many errors that had already begun to creep into the early Christian community. It's in this role, as the author of his great compendium of works, Against Heresies, that Irenaeus is chiefly remembered today. It may seem strange that errors, or heresies as they're called in both Latin and Greek, had become a problem for the Church as early as the 2nd century. After all, Irenaeus is counted among the first fathers of the Church, removed only by a few generations from the Twelve Apostles. But like it or not, heresy is almost as old as the Church herself. We might expect the stream to be purest at the source, as some people are fond of saying today, and while that's obviously true in the case of Christ and his twelve, it doesn't always hold up when we look at the rest of the early church. Even in the New Testament, we find that some Christians were beginning to stray from the true faith as understood by the apostles. St. Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, for example, instructs his readers not to be led astray by all sorts of strange doctrines. That's Hebrews thirteen nine. And in his second letter to Timothy, which we mentioned in our last episode, he predicts that the time is sure to come when people will not accept sound teaching, but their ears will be itching for anything new, and they will collect themselves a whole series of teachers according to their own tastes. That's 2 Timothy 4.3. If St. Paul himself had to warn against heresies, then we shouldn't be too shocked to find more cropping up by the lifetime of Irenaeus. So what were the errors, the heresies, which Irenaeus devoted his life to fighting? There were quite a few, but most of them can be labeled as various forms of Gnosticism. I briefly touched on this topic in our last episode, but it deserves a better explanation. Gnosticism is an umbrella term, describing a wide range of heretical sects and mystery cults in the classical world, not all of which even claimed to be Christian. The common thread tying them together was the belief that only a small group of gnostikoi, a Greek word meaning those with knowledge, could hope to attain salvation. These enlightened few believed that they possessed secret knowledge about metaphysics, morality, and the nature of God, which the majority of people could not possibly understand. Usually this hidden lore amounted to a rejection of matter as an illusion, and an elevation of spirit as the only true reality. The entire physical world, including the human body, was dismissed as the work of a demonic creator god known as the Demiurge, or Craftsman. The goal of life, for the Gnostics, was apparently to escape from the prison of the body. If this last part sounds a bit like Buddhism, then you may be onto something. While the origins of Gnosticism are far from clear, it may have been influenced by Oriental religions through contacts along the Silk Road. It's also linked with Platonic philosophy closer to home, as fans of ancient Greece may have noticed. Indeed, the concept of a demiurge, a creator separate from and inferior to the source of being known as God, comes directly from the works of Plato, though Plato himself did not consider the craftsman to be evil, even if he strongly favored the spiritual over the physical. Within Gnosticism, there existed many secret societies claiming access to esoteric knowledge. Some of these sects, like that of the Anatolian heretic Marcion of Sinope, identified the Demiurge who had crafted the wicked material world with the God of Israel, whom the Marcionites believed was a separate being from the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Jews, according to Marcion and his followers, had worshipped a false deity, a demon responsible for all the evil and suffering in the fallen physical world. The true God, Christ's Heavenly Father, was thought to be so remote, so distant, that he had taken no part in the creation of our world. Needless to say, this heresy could not be further from the orthodox understanding of God as our loving Father and Creator. Though we can still hear echoes of Marcionism, whenever someone today treats the Old Testament God and the New Testament God as if they were different beings. Other movements, like that of the Egyptian teacher Valentinius of Alexandria, developed the Gnostic cosmology more fully. The Valentinian form of Christianity was complex and sophisticated, drawing upon many concepts from Platonic philosophy. While I don't have time to walk you through the whole labyrinth of Valentinianism, I'll give you a short summary. The true god, named Vithos, meaning depth, brought into being thirty angelic spirits known as aeons, meaning something like forces of life. One of these aeons, named Sophia, meaning wisdom, apparently made a mistake and created the material world, including the human body, by accident. According to Valentinius, Jesus Christ came into this fallen physical world not to redeem humanity from sin, but to teach us how to transcend our flesh and become beings of pure spirit. Like the Marcionite rejection of the God of Israel, the Valentinian approach to human nature denies the profound meaning of the Incarnation, that God himself, creator of the universe, wanted to become one of us in both body and soul. Finally, a third variety of Gnosticism is worth mentioning because St. Irenaeus himself had to deal with its adherents when he was bishop. The bizarre sect led by the magician Marcus of Lyon. The Marcosians, as the followers of Marcus were known, often seem to have been wealthy women drawn in by the charisma and the supposed supernatural abilities Of this enigmatic sorcerer. Marcus combined Christianity with astrology, numerology, alchemy, and other elements of magic to form a school of the arcane arts. Today he's sometimes praised for pioneering the empowerment of women, as he apparently called his female favorites prophetesses and claimed to give them spiritual powers. But according to Irenaeus, who, bear in mind, knew the mage and his followers personally, Marcus sounds a lot more like a 1970s cult leader than a friend of women's emancipation. From Irenaeus, we learn that Marcus exploited his prophetesses for money and sex. In the words of the saints, Marcus would seduce a lady to reward him not only by the gift of her possessions, in which way he has collected a very large fortune, but also by yielding up to him her person, desiring in every way to be united with him, that she may become altogether one with him. It's not hard to see why Gnosticism gave rise to abuses like this. With its claims of secret knowledge special revelation, and a tiny group of enlightened souls constituting the true church, Gnostic theology was well-suited to dark and mysterious cults. Marcus of Lyon was not exactly Charles Manson, but there was more than a little overlap between them. Such were the kinds of sects that Irenaeus had to battle as bishop and he did so with none of the violent authoritarian measures available to an inquisitor of later centuries. His war against the Gnostics was truly a war of words, but it was no less dramatic for that, and no less important to the future of the Church. Christianity in the 2nd century was still an underground faith, persecuted by the Roman Empire, and lacking any institutional support beyond its own primitive hierarchy. The form of Christianity we now know as Catholic and Orthodox, affirming the incarnation of Jesus Christ as true God and true man for the redemption of body and soul, was only one out of many competing approaches, all claiming to represent the true faith. It was not at all obvious to those living at the time that the truth handed down by the apostles would prevail. But the Holy Spirit did not abandon the Church, and through the work of Irenaeus, the reality of Christ's incarnation, in all its boundless glory, was upheld for the world to see. In his book Against Heresies, Irenaeus offers the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Catholic faith as a beacon against the darkness of the Gnostic worldview. Where the Gnostics called the body a prison and the material world an illusion, Irenaeus defended the dignity of the flesh as well as the spirit, explaining that both are equal parts of the complete human person. In his own words, the body is the handiwork of God. It follows that flesh which has been molded is not a perfect man in itself, but the body of a man and part of a man. While neither is the soul itself considered a part by itself the man, but it is the soul of a man and a parts of the man. The co-mingling and union of all these constitutes the perfect man. In layman's terms, Irenaeus is saying that a human being is a compound of both body and soul. We are not, as the Gnostics taught, souls trapped in earthly bodies. Our bodies, as well as our souls, are made in the image of God. Both are redeemed by Christ Jesus. Appropriately for a saint committed to the full truth of the Incarnation, Irenaeus had a great love of Our Lady, the Mother of God. It was in her most holy womb that the Word became flesh, and it was in her humble submission to God's will that the sin of our first parents was undone. Speaking of Mary as the new Eve, who righted the wrong of the old Eve by giving herself fully to God, Irenaeus writes, as eve was seduced and so fled from god after disobeying his word mary in her turn was given the good news by the word of an angel and bore god in obedience to his word as eve was seduced into disobedience to god so mary was persuaded into obedience to god thus the virgin mary became the advocate of the Virgin Eve. Our Lady, as known to Irenaeus, cooperated with God in his plan for the redemption of our bodies and souls. When we understand her essential role in that story, we understand why she is afforded such honor in the Catholic and Orthodox faith that teaches the salvation of both spirit and flesh. Along with devotion to our Blessed Mother, Irenaeus offers a clear means of distinguishing true doctrines from heresies. He's well aware that the difference is not always obvious, and he doesn't expect us to take him merely at his word. Error, in the famous words of the saints, is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest, being thus exposed, it should at once be detected but it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than the truth itself. Heresy can look appealing. It can sound reasonable. It can present itself as truth to those who don't know better. Think how many people today deny the more difficult parts of Christian doctrine—sin, judgments, the possibility of damnation—on the grounds that these hard teachings don't seem very Christian on the surface. I've heard it said that every heresy starts with a grain of the truth, but takes it out of context and ignores the rest of the truth. St. Irenaeus saw how the Gnostics did just that. They took plausible ideas, like the need to purify the body in a fallen world, and spun them out of proportion into beliefs that were plainly false, like the body itself being evil. To determine the true faith from heresy, Irenaeus points us to the teachings of one church in particular, the See of Rome. Without wanting to stray into modern debates about the papacy, I'll note that Irenaeus is one of the earliest witnesses beyond the New Testament to present the Roman Church as the surest safeguard of orthodoxy. Against the Gnostics, with their secret societies for the enlightened few, Irenaeus directs the faithful to observe that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known Church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, as also the faith preached to men which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority, that is, the faithful everywhere, inasmuch as the apostolical tradition has been preserved continuously by those who exist everywhere. Irenaeus goes on to make it clear that he's talking about the bishops of Rome, providing one of the first lists of the early popes which has survived to the present day. Following Peter, he names Linus, Anacletus, Clemens, Evaristus, Alexander, Sixtus, Telesphorus, Hyginus, Pius, Anicetus, Soter, and Eleutherius. Who was Pope at the time when Irenaeus was writing in the late second century? In this order, says Irenaeus, and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith, which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now, and handed down. In truth. Irenaeus is not a flashy saint. Compared to the great miracle workers, mystics, and militant soldiers of Christ, his life as an intellectual bishop looks relatively tame. But his victories for the faith are no less important for having been won by the pen rather than the sword. Without the work of Irenaeus, Gnosticism could easily have taken deeper and more widespread roots in the early church, infesting the faithful with its dark and disturbing heresy. The union of body and soul as equal parts of the human person is an essential tenet of Christianity. To deny that truth is to call the Incarnation an act of blasphemy. If today we're inclined to raise an eyebrow at the extreme asceticism of some of the Church Fathers, then we should remember that we're only able to affirm the beauty of the human body because the early Church defeated Gnosticism. We can all thank God for that. As I mentioned at the start of today's episode... Pope Francis has recently conferred one of the Church's highest honors on St. Irenaeus, the title Doctor of the Church. As described by Bishop Robert Barron, this title indicates a saint whose teachings are of great value to all Christians around the world. In particular, Irenaeus has received the title Doctor of Unity. For his place at the crossroads of Eastern and Western Christianity. We can count on his prayers to help heal the schism which has divided the body of Christ for nearly a thousand years. By studying the example of this great Eastern theologian who spent his life fighting for the soul of the West, I believe both Orthodox and Catholics should see how much we can learn from each other. That may sound like a cliché, but it isn't. Irenaeus provides a model of healthy exchange and mutual support between the two halves of the Church. An educated Greek steeped in the learning of the East, he remained loyal to the teaching authority of the Bishop of Rome in the West. The different charisms of the two branches, the subtle scholarship of the East and the magisterial clarity of the West, allowed each side to strengthen the other in the person of Irenaeus. We could do a lot worse than to follow his lead in the pursuit of Christian unity. Irenaeus is undoubtedly a saint for our times in other ways, too. Ours is an age of profound confusion about the human body, an age of Gnosticism by any other name. When children are being taught in school that they might be the wrong gender, or that they can make up their own gender, or that there's no such thing as gender, you can be sure the hand of Gnosticism. Is still at work today. Whenever someone implies that their body is not part of the real me, or believes we can mess around with our organs and hormones and genes to force the body to obey the whims of the mind, we witness an ancient heresy springing to new life in a secular guise. Irenaeus reminds us that we are. Our bodies just as much as we are our souls, that what happens to one will always affect the other, and neither can be treated as an afterthought. It's in this light, understanding human life as the union of body and soul, that we can appreciate the richness of Irenaeus' best known saying that the glory of God is man fully alive. St. Irenaeus is commemorated on the 28th of June in the west and the 23rd of August in the east. You can still visit the site of his Episcopal work in Lyon, though the church that stands there today dates from the 9th century. If you would like to learn more about Irenaeus and call upon his intercession in your own life, I've included links to prayers and other resources in the show notes. May St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon and Doctor of Unity, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.